Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Mayburn, and today I'm joined by Sharam Akbarzadeh, research professor in Middle East and Central Asian politics at Deakin University and deputy director of International at Alfred Deakin Institute. Sharam, thank you so much for joining us. We've got so much to talk about today. You've got a huge back catalogue and we'll do our best to get through as as much of that as possible. But I'm really pleased that we're able to find time to, to get this scheduled. Thanks for having me, Simon. It's a pleasure to be on your programme. Uh, it's really exciting, Sharam. Thank you so much. So I should say at the start, you're also convening a, a Carnegie grant, aren't you? And uh, this is something really exciting. And I hope that we'll get a chance to talk about that later in the podcast. Absolutely. So I think we need to start right at the beginning. You've got such an extensive back catalogue that, that the beginning seems like the most obvious place to start. So can you tell us, Shadam, what got you interested in, in working on, on politics in, in the Middle East and Central Asia? Why, why politics? <laughs> well, I, uh, I think um, anyone who has been through uh, social and political upheavals uh, is kind of gets infected with this bug uh, of uh, wanting to know more and trying to be involved in politics. So I was very young when the Iranian revolution happened, right. and I was in the middle of it. So I think that really got me excited and interested in how politics works and uh, how we can learn more and what we can do more. So that was really the start. So um, I have been pursuing that um, ever since. And what what are your recollections of the revolution, if I might ask? Well, I was a um, late teenager. Uh, I remember mass rallies in the streets. I remember... uh, the army, I remember the tank soldiers shooting at uh, the people in the street. I, you know, I remember people getting shot and killed and injured. So it was quite a tumultuous time. Yeah. But I also remember what happened after the revolution, which was um, a period of opening up, a period of real excitement and optimism about what we could do um, in Iran following the fall of Shah, following Dynasty's um, fall. And um, unfortunately, that window of opportunity was shot very quickly. Um, there was a crackdown on opposition. Um, all sorts of dissidents were arrested, killed. Um, so uh, it was really, like I said, a tumultuous time, very dynamic time. Um, and promising, and at the same time, sad time. Yeah, I can imagine, and I, I can certainly understand why that would provoke a, a desire for, for more scholarly inquiry into why these things have happened and, and how they've happened. So that, that prompted mm, absolutely. Your, um, your, your intellectual study. Did you know at that point that you wanted to go on and do a PhD and, and become this, this stellar name in, in Middle East and Central Asian politics? Well, I don't know about the stellar name, but I did know that I want to study more and more politics. Right. I wasn't sure if it's going to lead to PhD, but um, yeah, I, I, I wanted to study more, and I knew. And I, yeah, I just really wanted to pursue that uh, the studying. So um, 
doing a PhD was just a natural extension of my intellectual pursuit. Sure. So you finished the PhD, and then where did where did life take you after that? Um, well, I finished my PhD, and uh, basically, I had you know when in Australia, it's really tough to break into the academic academic game. Yeah, uh, I suppose it's the same thing in the US and in England, but it's really tough. Um, so when you finish your PhD. You end up doing all sorts of odd jobs, uh, fixed term appointments, um, tutoring jobs, casual jobs. And um, so I was really trying to do all of that while getting my publications in order. So because I I was told and it was quite evident that if you don't have a long list of publications, you don't really have much of a chance in academia. Yeah. So I was working on my on my publications, and my publications were looking at Central Asian politics. I was looking at how Islam was being used in Central Asia following the Soviet collapse. I was interested in the rise of Islamic militancy in Central Asia. Um, And um, I applied for a postdoc position at the University in Australia. And at the same time, unfortunately, September 11 happened, right? and my postdoc was on the rise of Islamic militancy in Central Asia. So sure. I got the postdoc, and I guess the rest is history. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. And it, it's interesting that, that you had that, that start in, in Central Asia, and Islam in Central Asia, and looking over your, your career and your, your publications, you've, you've sort of straddled Central Asia and the Middle East, which is it's really fascinating. But but can you tell us a bit about how how the two regions differ in terms of, of the study of them, if at all? Well, there's a lot that uh, connects the two regions, connects Central Asia and the Middle East. They are both Islamic. They, they have a, a, they share an Islamic um, civilization, Islamic traditions. Um, there's a Turkic connection between the two. There are ethnic connections between Central Asians and Iran and Afghanistan. So there are a lot of connections, but they're also very different because uh, until the Soviet Union collapsed, Central Asia was a very secular um, you know, region. Uh, the leadership in Central Asia was really beholden to um, to, to Moscow, answerable to Moscow. They treated religion as uh, uh, something to be suppressed. So there was an anti-religious campaign going on periodically, but religion was very much um, frowned upon in Central Asia. And this was different, and this is very different to the Middle East, where religion has always been very visible. Yeah. Religion has always been very much in the public domain. If controlled if managed, but still in the public domain. So that distinction of um, public and private for religion was, um, you know, wasn't really present in, in wasn't present in, in the Middle East, whereas it was very much present in Central Asia. Religion was practiced in private, but in public it was suppressed. So that's the kind of comparison. But when the Soviet Union collapsed, everything changed. And all of a sudden, you have communist leaders who had been answering to Moscow, all of a sudden turning, you know, swapping their hats 
and saying, oh, we are championing the nation and we are championing Islam. So they really caught up with that game of using Islam to justify their position, their hold on power, and justify Islam to promote obedience to the government. So, and I think that is more and more like what we see in the Middle East. Yeah, Islam used as a tool of power. Sure, it's it's interesting hearing you say that because I can I can sort of reflect on on the other work that you've done beyond Central Asia, and I can see a number of, of themes in terms of of the role of Muslims within society in terms of, of stability, in terms of states and security, and, and kind of putting this jigsaw together. Is that something that, that prompted you to, to move elsewhere, to move into the Middle East, to look at Australia and, and, and Muslims in the West broadly, these types of questions, or was that something else? Well, it was a question of how Islam was being used by both camps, really. Right. How Islam is being used by uh, by power, by religions regimes in power, um, to subjugate society, and how Islam is used as a tool for rebellion against power. So you have groups, um, in, even in Iran, you have groups that really refer to Islam as a religion of resistance, refer to Islam as a religion of um, put of fighting tyranny. Um, that's how it was used during the Iranian Revolution. Islam was supposed to be the um, the you know the battle cry of rebellion against tyranny. So um, that dynamic is fascinating. I find that dynamic fascinating, and it's uh, never black and white. Yeah. So I've been trying to grapple with that. So I have had some work on political Islam, how it's used. How, the distinction between political Islam and um, and extremism, uh, and there's not there's never a direct connection between them. Uh, um, much, uh, you know, as much as some uh, opinion makers would like us to believe. Yeah. Um, there's not that much of a direct connection between political Islam and extremism. In fact, political Islam can work very well within the established. Um, democratic framework, um, so that you know that's pretty obvious. But that so that's my work on the Middle East. Um, I was more and more drawn into looking at how the Muslim population in the West copes with the demands of um, a Western society, citizenship legal obligations, and maintaining the religious faith community. I think that, so that was the other dynamic that interesting, obviously being based in Australia and having to deal with all sorts of media backlash against Islam. That issue also, you know, raised questions for me, raised, uh, raised my interest. So I've had some work done, uh, a couple of projects funded by Australian Research Council, um, leading to publications looking at how Muslims can be good citizens in the West uh, while maintaining their religious affiliation, their sense of uh, you know faith, belief sure. in Islam, belief in uh, traditions. Hmm. So, 
we've we've obviously in in the UK we've heard a great deal about this, particularly with regard to to London bombing, seven seven things like that, and the the role of Muslims in the states has been well covered. But and excuse my ignorance here, but could you tell us a little bit about Muslims in Australia then, please? Well, Muslims in Australia are, are fairly new. It's a small population. Um, it's about three percent. I have to double check my my stats, but <laughs> population. Sure. Um, and um, it's it's a fairly new community. You know, migration to Australia from Muslim countries really started in earnest in the seventies and eighties. Before that, Australia had a white Australia policy, which meant that only white people could migrate to Australia. So um, that really put a certain barrier to migration from the Middle East, from Muslim sure, Middle East. Yeah. Um, but, you know, with the removal of that policy, arrival of a lot of Muslim migrants, we have had um, migrants coming from Lebanon, from Iraq, um, from Egypt, from Turkey. So for a long time, the Australian Muslim population was either Turkish by descent or Lebanese by descent. Right. So the Turks and the Lebanese were really two large ethnic groups. Um, And that meant that a lot of mosques and community organizations had that kind of ethnic affiliation. Sure. But more and more, we're seeing that the Australian Muslim population, if you look at their place of birth, the place of birth, those who are born in Australia are actually the largest group among the Australian Muslim population. So we have, we're seeing now second and third generation Muslims who were born here, and their number is greater than migrant Muslims from Lebanon, from Turkey, from Egypt, from Pakistan, or other places. And that is, of course, that has implications because the language that's spoken in mosques yeah, of is... Course tends to be English, not uh, the original language yeah. of home country. And a lot of the concepts that are being explored in sermons, in, in you know, khutbah, they are uh, more relevant, more contemporary to Australian um, landscape and context. Sure. So that's quite significant. So in the literature, you see references to the rise of um, Australian Islam, just because of that transition yeah. From Islam being a religion of migrants to Islam being a religion of Muslim citizens in Australia. Sure. That's, it's fascinating hearing all of this. I mean, it's it's going far beyond the, the traditional sort of political science approaches, if you will, of, of mm. understanding these things. I mean, it's it's religious studies, it's geography, it's diasporic studies, it's anthropology. It's It's fascinating. It's really, really interesting. But I wonder, can we return Absolutely. to um, to to the the focus on legitimacy and Islam as as a source of legitimacy? There, there are two areas that I want to touch on, if I may. And the first is mm. is the OIC, and the second concerns yes. sectarianism. And you've done a lot of work on sectarianism and and Hezbollah mm. as a particular type of actor. But I wonder if you mm. can say a little bit about about the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, and how that itself is a source of, of competition and legitimacy. Well, OIC is um, effectively 
um, an organization that the Saudi Arabia, the Saudi Arabia has built to um, to really um, demonstrate, prove its leadership position in the Muslim world. The idea is that OIC will bring all Muslim states together. Uh, and the fact that Saudi Arabia has invested so heavily financially in that organization means that Saudi Arabia has very significant sway and, and you know, influence over what happens with OIC. The problem with this whole idea of having a, an international organization representing the Muslim Ummah, this global Muslim community, is that there is so much competition between Muslim states. Yeah. Muslim states don't, um, don't put their national interests, however they see them, they don't put them aside against each other just because they are Muslim. Uh, I mean, there's so many cases of Muslim states competing with each other, being rivals, or just outright warring. Uh, Iran and Iraq were two Muslim states fighting each other sure. for eight years. So, um, the, the, I do have problem actually come at, accepting at face value that there is a global Muslim Ummah sure. uh, that can act as a unified entity on the global stage. But having OIC based in Saudi Arabia, of course, gives Saudis a certain amount of um, leverage over other uh, Muslim states. Um, OIC has a development fund. They have an aid agency. Uh, they can use those kind of um, strings to uh, buy support for Saudi policy, especially in its competition with Iran. So um, OIC is now very much embroiled in the sectarian tension between Iran and Saudi Arabia. I say sectarian tension, but I have to also correct myself <laughs> and say that it's really two-state competition. Sure, um, yeah. It's, um, sectarianism just happens to be the, the veneer, the cover that we see that's most visible. But effectively, we have two states, Iran and Saudi Arabia, competing for leadership role in the Muslim world. And Saudi Arabia has the upper hand because it has been funding overseas. So there was a conference in in Turkey a couple of years back, and um, OIC basically took sides um, and issued a statement against Iran, issued a statement against Hezbollah, which is an Iran ally, and it was a very partisan um, partisan position, which was quite embarrassing. I think President Rouhani was um, planning to be at the final session of the conference, but then he realized that OIC summit is going to end with this communique that condemned Iran. Yeah. He kind of politely left the summit, so he doesn't have to face that, uh, <laughs> right. that level of antagonism. Sure. I should say that that this is this question was was born out of a piece that you wrote recently in the International Journal of Politics, Culture, and Society, 
So for for anyone right. who wants to to read more about this, I, I'll tweet a link to it, and it's a it's a fascinating piece and largely largely underexplored, I should say. So um, thank you for is underexplored. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. thank you for filling this gap, Sharam. And um, if we can move into the more political dimension, you talked about this this rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and I would be inclined to agree with you that it's. And it's political rather than sectarian. But you've also written about the sort of the, the complexity of sectarianism and struggle for legitimacy with groups like Hezbollah and the, the aftermath of the Arab uprisings. So can you say a little bit about how that picture fits together, please? Well, it's a very complex picture. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, you know... Um, I think following the Arab string, I think I have to start with um, how Iran responded to the Arab Spring. That's probably a good starting point. Sure. Because um, the Iranians were very happy to say that, oh, look at us, the Arab world is now catching up with the Iranian model of revolution. Yeah. They are rising up against their dictators and rulers, and they're going to bring Islam. So they actually called it an Islamic awakening revolution, not uh, not uh, Arab Spring. Yeah, and they held conferences, and they're very happy uh, with Muslim Brotherhood uh, rise in Egypt. But um, the whole thing really took a sectarian turn when um, the Arab Revolution reached Syria, uh, an Iran ally. And the Syrian government started shooting at its own population, and the um, and it quickly turned into a um, an armed conflict. And the rebels accused Syria, accused Bashar al-Assad uh, as being a Shia, and uh, you know labeling him as a Shia, and therefore um, somewhat alien to the majority of um, Muslim population in Syria, which is Sunni. So that that affiliation, Alawite, Shia, Iran, as an ally, as an external ally, turned the dynamic quite quickly. Um, what was essentially an uprising for uh, popular representation and political openness turned into and was presented as some, somehow a sectarian conflict between the Sunni majority and Alawite slash Shia minority rulers. And given that Iran was an ally in supporting Bashar al-Assad, so Iran is a Shia power supporting Bashar al-Assad, it just reinforced that message of a sectarian alliance against the population. So you see this kind of dynamic emerging elsewhere. Bahrain had a similar, the reverse experience, but in terms of dynamic, the same dynamic, where Iran was pushing, um, you know, very happy to see the Shia majority pushing for political openness because it banked on having a Shia ally coming to power in Bahrain. So sure, uh, yeah. the Shia population is a majority. The rulers are, are Sunni. Um, but given that Iran was supporting them, the Bahraini government was very happy and very quick to turn the table and say, oh, look, this rebellion 
is actually a foreign plot, it's a Shia plot, and put this gloss, this, this cover of uh, sectarianism on top of the conflict. And then once you apply that lens, everything just seems to make perfect sense. <laughs> everything is sectarian. You can explain all alliances, all conflicts from a sectarian lens, and then it becomes um, a, you know, a, a fact, a, a reality that you cannot ignore. Yeah. And then everyone just takes this granted. So that's one of the problems with the media coverage of conflict in the Middle East. If I may, can I just... Syrian conflict. Can I just ask, Sharam, is that a phrase you've Sorry? used elsewhere? You, you talked about yeah. sectarian gloss. And I think that's a fabulous way mm. of describing things. Is that something that, that you've used elsewhere? Or was that just a turn of phrase that you've come up with? Well, I think I'm going to copyright it now that you mention it. <laughs> <laughs> because that does such a good job of, of explaining and and demonstrating what what many scholars, uh, ourselves included, view, or how we view <clears throat> sectarian politics, not so much as uh, an ancient hatred, but as a gloss that goes over the top of, of many other yeah. deeper structural uh, issues. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's, it's difficult to ignore it because once it's applied, once it's there, then um, it's hard to avoid it. Yeah. Uh, and that in itself becomes becomes the reality. Sure. And anyone who's tried to remove gloss from, um, from a wall or from anything will know how difficult that it is. So, yeah, I think that's yeah. a, a really good way of... <laughs> Of putting it, but sorry, I, I interrupted you whilst you were on the verge of, of talking about Hezbollah and locating Hezbollah in this complex jigsaw. Well, Hezbollah is, um, I mean, it's very much the same dynamic. Hezbollah is a legitimate political force in Lebanon. It happens to be Shia, and um, given that Iran has been desperate for allies, has been looking for allies, uh, there was uh, this alliance built between Iran and Hezbollah. In fact, Iran was very much instrumental in setting Hezbollah up as a force of opposition against um, the against Israel. So, uh, but that Shia connection, that sectarian connection, seems to dominate yeah. all other factors. There are there is a um, the Shia population in Hezbollah and the Shia population in Lebanon. I beg your pardon. The Shia population has its own grievances in Lebanon, and they need political representation. And Hezbollah has been uh, performing a role in giving voice to Shia concerns. So um, calling Hezbollah a sectarian force, calling Hezbollah a terrorist organization might, might be good, might have good sound bites in media, but it doesn't really address the issues that is faced in Lebanon. Yeah, sure. So we've got this this incredibly complex picture, and and your your canon of work does such a good job at at, at focusing in on particular parts of that jigsaw. But I'd also like to to um, point our listeners' attention to to a tweet that Routledge Area Studies put out. I think it was uh, was it was about 24 hours ago, recording today on, on Tuesday. And what they'd done is they had listed a book co- uh, edited by you, 
as one of their top books of the month. And the book is the Routledge Handbook on the International Relations of the Middle East. And what I think you do so very well in that is bring together this jigsaw. And so congratulations on it coming out. It's very exciting. But could you tell us a little bit about what you're trying to do with that book then, please? Thank you. Of course, uh, I was very fortunate to have your contribution in that collection, Simon. Oh, you're too kind. And uh, so many other great scholars uh, who contributed to that collection. And what um, it occurred to me, reviewing books for Ratledge, and it occurred to me just reading and doing literature review on the Middle East and international relations, there have been a whole lot of really good, specific, targeted, focused research done and publications done on Middle East, specific issues in the Middle East. But I couldn't see a lot of bird's eye view approach as to what's happening. So that book is really an attempt to bring um, international relations theory into explaining and into grappling with some of the issues that that we are facing in the Middle East, be it um, extremism or... um, um, authoritarianism. We have a whole range of issues, unfortunately, in the Middle East. So it was really good to have that. Um, uh, you know, we have authors looking at constructivism, um, neorealism. Um, so I'm hoping, I think, that book has um, addressed the gap in the literature. I certainly think it has, and I would be inclined to agree that that there hasn't really been a broad snapshot of the discipline of international relations. There have been comparative foreign policy mm. books and things like that, but nothing that that really does what you want to do, which is so ambitious in its scope. And I really must commend you and, and say you've done a wonderful job of pulling together a fantastic team, some of whom have been on, mm. on previous SEPAD pods and present company excluded, myself, of course. It's, it's wonderful, Fantastic, a really yes. strong collection of, of scholars. So well done. And I should say that this follows on a Routledge Handbook of Political Islam that you also uh, pulled together a few years ago. That's, that's while back, yes. Yeah, and that was seeking to do that's similar types back. of things, was it? Trying to paint this bigger picture. Looking at the big picture of how political Islam can have different manifestations in different parts of the region, and not just the Middle East, though, because, um, in fact, I'm working on a second edition of that book. Fantastic. Uh, political Islam. And, uh, and I'm bringing in experiences from uh, Southeast Asia, uh, Africa, just to get a sense that political Islam uh, as an ideology can have so many different manifestations and can work and operate in so many different ways. The multitude of ways that political Islam operates, I think, is often ignored. Um, And in a way, the term itself doesn't do justice to the complexity of political Islam. So bringing that out and um, teasing out some of the complexities uh, was the objective of that book, and I'm hoping to build on that. Fantastic. Can you give us a quick teaser as to when this second edition might be out? Oh, sometime next year, hopefully. Okay. All goes well. Fantastic. You know, edited collections, Simon. Edited collections are a bit of a nightmare, <laughs> probably, no. Yeah. <laughs> They are. So uh, it just happened. We just have to see what happens. Maybe well, next year, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Sharam, we've taken up so much of your time, but I wonder if you could just, before you go, if you could just say a few words about your Carnegie project, because I know there's people going to be incredibly fascinated in, in what you're doing over there. 
Sure, sure. So um, we were very fortunate to um, respond to a call by Carnegie Endowment regarding uh, proxy wars in the region, and we said we'll do. So this is a team of us. It's not just me. It's a team of us at Deakin University, and we have partners uh, in the region, in Pakistan and Afghanistan. Uh, we're looking at uh, how relationship between external actors and local actors in Syria and in Afghanistan have impacted on the dynamic of um, conflict. So um, this, is, this is quite an ambitious project uh, because we are trying to build a database uh, based on reportings of connections, events, uh, and intensity of conflict in Afghanistan and Syria, and then try and cross-tablate and cross-check uh, how various partnerships, uh, proxy, patronage relations um, have changed the course of the conflict. And one of the things that's already clear, so this is a two-year project, we're kind of six months into it or maybe nine months into it, so we don't really have a lot of data to report on, but one thing is very clear already, and that is, Unlike the assumption um, that proxy actors always do the bidding of their patrons, in reality, proxy actors in local actors have a lot of autonomy over what they do and what they don't do. And they don't always follow the direction and the agenda of their patron externally. Uh, I mean, this this is very clear in terms of Afghanistan and how Taliban, for example, is operating yeah. in relationship to Pakistan, Pakistani agenda. Um, now we're seeing that Iran is also trying to establish links with Taliban and have some level of sway and influence over them. Again, we cannot treat the Taliban as a simple stooge, simple stooges of those foreign powers. They have their own agenda and their own, um, you know, autonomy. Sure. So it's really exciting. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's really, really important, I think. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing the the findings as and when you've processed this this huge amount of data that you must be swimming through. So I'm pleased that you have a team to support you, Shadam. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, it's never a one person show. Not never a one person show, Simon. You should know that. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's true. That's true. And uh, I'm hoping to get other members of your team on the podcast um, when their books come out. Fantastic. I, I I look forward to that too. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Sharam. It's been an absolute pleasure Thanks. talking to you. I think this is the the most wide ranging Sepad pod of all so far. And that, I think, is a testament thank to you. the contributions that you've made to, to these debates. So thank you so much, Aram. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me, Simon. It's been a pleasure. No, thank you so much. And until the next okay. time, everyone, okay. thank you for listening.